Well, uh, if you would, open up your Bible to John chapter 15, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in there. Doesn't it feel good in here this morning, walking in from outside? I'll go a little bit long today, if you'd like, just to keep you in the cool air and keep you from that heat. Um, <clears throat> well, I was introduced this last week by two different men as, um, as a pastor, and uh, it's really one of the joys of being a pastor is getting introduced as a pastor. It doesn't happen very often, which I'm kind of glad about. Um, but they were two very different circumstances. One was, um, was by Rich, and Rich introduced me. He said, this is my pastor, and he was introducing me to a group of pastors. And so I was received a certain way by those, by those guys, and, uh, and they said, oh, nice to meet you, and this and that. And there was a second person um, by the name of Rob, who's not here with us uh, today. And Rob actually takes great pleasure in introducing me as his pastor. Because most of the time that Rob and I are together, we're around um, very unchurched people much of the time. And he knows, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that great conversation will follow. And he tries to introduce me as his pastor at usually like the most controversial of times. Uh, and so here's an example. Um, we actually played golf together this week, and uh, and and the people in our group, we all we all knew each other. We were all Christians, so he wasn't able to do it within our group. Uh, but normally, what he would do is wait several holes. And oftentimes, um, men on the golf course, I've noticed, tend to reach into the vocabulary bag and pull out words that are, shall we say, savory. Uh, that might be a good way to say it. Um, and so they're frustrated on the golf course, and usually right after some juicy swear word, Rob will say, did you know Dave's my pastor? You know, and he just, he loves it. And the reason is, is because, um, because there's usually some kind of tension that's, that's there. And, uh, and I, I think about this, and I think about the fact that, you know, um, I'm, not, I'm not always sure uh, how to act around the world. I'm not always sure of my place and my fit in the world sometimes. And the scripture that we're going to look at today is going to give us an indication. Now, if you were to take just this segment of scripture and not balance it with the whole council of scripture, you'd form a really weird cult. And it'd be really dangerous, I think. So we have to remember there's a whole, there's a whole Bible here to, to balance this against. But Jesus is talking to his disciples the night before he's going to die. And so he's talked about, here's how you relate to me. Remember the grapes? He said, abide in me. Here's, here's the most important thing. Your relationship with me. We good on that? Okay, let's move on. Here's your relationship one to another as Christians. Love one another. But he's always jockeying for position. I don't care. The command is really explicit. Love one another. He says it twice in a very short span of time. Now he's moving on from not relating to himself or to the church family. But he then says, how are we to relate to the world? Now I realize that even as I say that, there's a certain question mark that comes into your mind. As I talk about the world, it can be sometimes confusing. For instance, let me just say that in the book of John, there are 57 verses that use the word world. And they're used in a variety of ways. Who can quote John 3.16 or at least a part of it? 
For God so loved the world, right? What did God love? The world. Okay? So there's, there's one thing. Are we to love the world? I think so. God loves the world. I think we better love it. There's other times it's a little bit benign. John 1.10, the world did not recognize him. That's not necessarily loving or hating the world. It's just a benign use of the word. The way that we're going to see it used here, and our passage is John 15, verse 18, starting in verse 18, is talking about this evil, fallen world system. Filled with unregenerate people, ruled by the evil one, Satan. And the word is cosmos. And that's what we're going to look at today. John kind of expands on what he's talking about with this word world in 1 John. 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world. And that's the same word, by the way, cosmos. Or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world... And then he lists three things, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. So as we talk about world here, I don't want us to be confused about what it's talking about. And John does use it in a variety of ways. But in this sense, that's kind of the backdrop of what he's referring to. The question in essence is, how separate should we be? Ever wrestle with that? Ever wrestle with that as an individual? Think back to when you first came to know Christ. There was a sense that we should be separate, but you say, well, how separate should we be? Maybe a better discussion, and you can do this in your community groups, is where should the separation be? Should there be an internal separation or an external separation? This text doesn't talk about that, so I don't get to talk about it, but you can chew on that as a community group. Here's two camps of people. There's, there's uber-liberals within the Christian community that would say this. There should be no distinction between us and the world. There's absolutely no language for us, them kind of talk. We all need to be back together. Everyone's on the right path as long as they point to something similar to God that we know in the Bible. There's a problem with that camp. It's unbiblical. We just got done hearing Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What's the next part? No one comes to the Father. Who's he talking about? God. No other path up the mountain leads to God except me. By making that declaration, he is declaring every other path to be false, destructive from the evil one. A lie. He also talks about sheep and goats, weeds and wheat. He goes on and on about a true disciple versus a false disciple. So there is room for us, them, language. There's some in the Christian camp that would say, yeah, there is. There's lots of room for us, them, language. And they're the uber-conservatives. And this is where total abstinence and zero interaction comes in. I'm for total abstinence in some contexts, not in this one. This is the person who says we need to completely separate, isolate, and have zero interaction with that world out there. And there's a problem with that. The problem is, it's unbiblical. 1 Timothy 1 says, here's a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save 
sinners. Two chapters from now, Jesus is going to say these words, praying to his Father. As you, God, sent me into the world, I, Jesus talking, have sent them into the world. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Christ Jesus sends us out into the world. So is total abstinence from the world an option? Not if you read the Bible and believe it. Not if you want to obey what God tells you to do. So there's kind of the two extremes. Here's what I want to do at the very start of this. I want to acknowledge with humility that there's some tension here. There's just tension in trying to figure this out. Christians spend a lot of money and time, even book ink, arguing with each other about this. How separate should we be? That's being too liberal. That's being too separatist and conservative. What I'm proposing to you this morning is, I think we can approach this text of Scripture and say humbly and be authentic about it and say, Lord, we struggle with this sometimes. We've felt ourselves go too far and almost begin to appear to love the world. And so we recoil back from that knowing it's wrong. We've also felt ourselves start to isolate and be the Lego kingdom on the left in that video, building up our own kingdom, neglecting the very ones you called us to save. Jesus called us neither to be of the world nor out of the world. He called us to be in the world. Again, John 17, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you'd protect them from the evil one. That's where we're going. Maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't. I grew up in the church. Most of you know that I spent every other weekend in church. On the off weeks, I got to watch cartoons. Given the option, I'd watch cartoons, then go to church every morning on Sundays. But that's what parents are for. They uh, encouraged me to go to church strongly. And so I went to church every other week, and I watched this kind of cultural war go on between Christians and non-Christians, and here's the essence of the battle as I see it. There's a bunch of Christians that were angry at the world for being so bad. That was kind of one camp of people. And then there was a bunch of people from the world who were angry at Christians for thinking that they're so good. And here's the message that we're about to read from the mouth of Jesus in John chapter 15, and it's this. That Christians are to love the very ones who harass them. He is going to give us warning this morning, prepare to be harassed. Prepare to be hounded and persecuted and fired at. Brace yourself, it's coming. Some of you in this room, I can see it on your face right now, you're like, yeah, I totally know what you're talking about. Because you've been there. The title this morning is Stay in the Race. Stay in the human race. Don't depart it because it's tough. I want to help us as a congregation to suffer well. If you're taking notes this morning, you can pull them out uh, from from your bulletin. We've got a ton of things in the bulletin today, but pull it out. And I just want to offer you three things Three reasons, basically, of why the world hates Christians. Why the world hates true believers. And then a little response for each one that we have there. If you have your Bibles open to John 15, look at verse 19 with me for a moment. Verse 19 says this. If you belong to the world, 
It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Point number one is this. The world rejects those who are not a part of it. The world rejects those who are not a part of it. There is a, there is a world system out there that every single one of us is, in essence, born into. And it's the ability to use human logic and reason, and that's what we're exposed to. And when you go outside of that, you're rejected. Now, I don't want to minimize anyone's rejection in here. I understand that the wounds of rejection are really, really deep, and they go on and on and on, even after salvation. So it doesn't mean that because we're bracing forward and talking about it openly, that it doesn't hurt and that you don't feel pain from it. But the reality is, and the truth I want to just peel our eyes back and look at, is that Satan hates God. We talk about baptism in this way. When someone gets baptized, they're pulling on the jersey and saying, I'm on Jesus' team now. I want to make a public declaration. This is who I'm gunning for. And that immediately puts a target on your back from the enemy. Satan not only hates God, he hates those who are chosen by God, as the video says, as secret messengers. And he goes after them. 1 Peter 5, the language is this, that, that Satan prowls around seeking someone to devour. The response we have to this warfare in Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God. It also says, be aware of the devil's schemes. So do you get the picture? There is a battle going on here. Let me ask you this. Who, who is our enemy according to the Bible? Who's our enemy? Satan is. Elsewhere it says the battle's not against flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle that's raging. So some of you in here, when I said we're not supposed to, uh, to be a part of the world, we, we immediately get flared up like, oh, it doesn't feel right, it doesn't sit right. And if you think it means I'm leveraging you against your neighbor as they're the enemy, you're right, it shouldn't sit right with you. I want to lift your gaze above that and realize there's a spiritual war going on here. People are born as slaves to falsehood. Second Peter 3, listen to this. He says, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. Here's what they'll do. Mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, whatever happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again. Have you ever given someone a reason for the hope that's within you and you've said, I'm waiting for my king to return? And they say, why are you living this way? Basically, it's eat, drink, and be married, dude. What's your problem? And you say, I'm living for a payoff that's later. You ever been mocked for that? You ever have someone say, yeah, yeah, I heard that church message. Hey, ever since ever I've ever seen it, Days go on the same, one after another. Where's this coming king? Nothing's changed. They've been saying that for 2,000 years against Christians. And yet, isn't it a powerful testimony that Christians keep clinging to this hope? 
It's either mad and foolish, or it's a powerful testimony that there really is a spiritual war at work. Not only do they mock the truth, but the world participates and applauds evil. You ever notice this? Romans chapter 1 says this, Although they know God's righteous decree, that those who do such things, he had just listed a bunch of evil things, deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Here's the message for us as Christians. You will never fit in with the world. Nor should you. You will never fit in. So just get, get that in your head and, and realize that. And the, and the reality is, is that you and I, if we're chosen by God, if we've been given new life, born of the Spirit, we don't belong to the world anymore. And Jesus said it bluntly. For this, they'll hate you. They're going to hate you for this. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross, cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It goes on a chapter later to say, We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit. That's why you don't fit in. That's why you'll be rejected. That's why the message of the cross and preaching the gospel that you know is the power of salvation for all people will be rejected by most. So brace for it. Until you are born of the Spirit, belonging to the world is as good as it gets. You feel like that's the pinnacle. This started for most of us in middle school. We became keenly aware that we really long to fit in and not be the odd person out. Some people never outgrow middle school. They cling to belonging to the world as somehow that's the pinnacle and that's the, as good as it gets. When your eyes are open to saying, you belong now to me and I'm the everlasting king. It's that pearl of great price idea. You go, man, what used to be so important to me, fitting in, being accepted, gaining some mediocre amount of popularity, all that looks like rubbish. It looks like trash to me now. Because I'm accepted by God. Here's the response. The response to being rejected because you're not a part of it is this. Stay true to your identity. Stay true to your identity. In the world, but not of it. We're going to look at that more in the weeks to come. But First Peter 2 on the screen here just reminds us that we're to live in such a way that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Not only are you chosen out of the world, but the one that you are following was murdered. Can we just keep that in mind? This Jesus that we're following, and we're saying we're following the leader, he was murdered. For doing wrong? No, he was murdered for doing right. Look at verse uh, 18 in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Jesus is a good leader. He goes first in things, even in being hated. And then he says, look, I've been hated. Don't think it's going to be any different for you. Number two as to why the world hates us, 
the world hated Jesus first. It's a pretty simple picture to see that. Verse 20, he says, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. There's a certain amount of entitlement that I think is an American word, not only born with, but it's ingrained into us. Burger King had a lot to do with it in the mid-80s with having it our way and this and that. But bottom line is, we feel entitled. We feel a certain amount of entitlement as Christians, the right to be treated a certain way, the right to be heard, the right to be protected, the right to have our freedoms lifted up the same as other people and groups. Jesus came along and he says, this is what's right. This is what's right for you. And he takes up a towel. He gets down in a low, humble position. And he gives away every one of those rights that I just named off. Gives it away. That's what a life of servanthood is all about. Not just serving once in a while. Not just serving where you're still in control and you divvy out your little service here and there. But choosing a life of servanthood means you just give all that away. You know, you're, you're, you're not even in control of it anymore. Do you see how a life of servanthood and one who really thinks they're a slave to righteousness is no longer offended when they're treated like a slave? No longer feeling put down when they're put down. Jesus seems like he's getting his troops ready for this storm. And he's looking them in the eyes and he's saying some different things. There's got to be an intensity. They've been with him for three and a half years. There's got to be an intensity to his eyes and his expressions and his mannerisms and the way he's just going, all right, guys, here it comes. This is it. I mean, these are some of his few and final words before he's going to leave them. He points out a silver lining to the storm. He says, if they obeyed me, guess what? They're going to obey you also. He kind of paints a picture for the church, I believe. And that is this. A majority of the people will reject you, will persecute you, will find what we're doing in here not only silly but repulsive in some ways. So there will be slander. There will be mocking. There will be attack. But there will be a few that will obey, just like there were a few that obeyed Jesus. They must have thought back to his words, small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few ever find it. I don't know if you've experienced this in your life, but I can say from personal experience, that when new life is witnessed, and I'm talking about spiritual new life, you tend to forget and it erases all kinds of pain and rejection and hurt and persecution that's gone up leading into that. In fact, Jesus is going to grab that very picture in one chapter. As he's talking about his departure, he's going to use a woman in childbirth. He's going to use this metaphor that's very, very real to someone sitting in the front row who's due in three days. It's very, very real to someone who is just leading us in worship. 
And that is that all this pain that's going to go into it. Sorry, but it's true. All this pain that's going to be there. Unspeakable pain. Just kidding. I'll, I'll stop. Uh, sorry. I'm just... um, or so I've heard, yeah. Um, is, is, somehow, is somehow forgotten when that, when that child is placed in your arms. And for those of you who have been courageous, for those of you who have been faithful in preaching the gospel by the way that you live, in preaching the gospel by the way that you speak, in being gutsy enough in your relationships to say, I love you so much, I'm going to speak the truth in love here, and it's the hardest thing ever, and I fear that you'll probably reject me for this, but I've got to tell you this because it's true. You've received persecution. You've received pains. Maybe not exactly like those of a woman in childbirth, but you know what it is to groan. You know what it is to be in pain. And isn't it incredible when you see the spiritual light bulb go on in someone and they get it. And then you watch a life begin to transform before your very eyes. I mean, that is about, that is about the biggest rush that I've experienced on this earth. And I've experienced a lot of rushes because I'm kind of into that. There's nothing like that. And so it keeps you going. And you go, man, I've got to keep getting this message out. And I've got to brace myself that more than 9 out of 10 people are going to not believe this. Paul invites people into the suffering. 2 Timothy 1.8 He says this, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of it. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I want you to think in your life for a moment of how and when you've suffered for the name of Jesus. If it hasn't been there yet in your life, don't heap shame and guilt on yourself. I want you to walk out of this building today wondering why not. If you call yourself a Christian, I want you just to to wonder why not. I don't want to heap shame and guilt on you. Grace is all about erasing all that. But now you've been given a message that says, maybe that should be present in my life. What am I going to do with this newfound knowledge? I'm not responsible for not knowing it for the last two years. I'm responsible for knowing it now. Because it sure seems like Jesus is bracing his followers for suffering. Those of you who have suffered, those of you who have been mocked and slandered, maybe some in this room have been physically assaulted in some way, shape, or form for their faith, for mentioning the name of Jesus. Would you not agree that it's in the battle? We're using this metaphor of a race, which the Bible also uses. But it's in the heat of battle where we are tested and approved. It's in the midst of battle and turmoil and pain and suffering where our faith morphs from kind of theoretical and academic into this certainty. And it's proven in our life right before our faces. It's in the suffering that that happens and takes place. It's in the battle. Matthew 5.11, Jesus talking to a group of people on a mountainside said this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you 
because of me. I love this. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know what your response to this is? It's to count your blessings. Your response to being hated is to understand they hated my master. Why wouldn't they hate me? He really seemed to get under their skin. Why won't I get under people's skin? I probably will. And when they say all kinds of evil against you, when they falsely say things about you, rejoice. Be glad about it. Not only are we not a part of this world, not only are we following in the way of the Master, but finally the world is convicted of sin, and that's found in verse 22. Look at verse 22. I'll get to the picture in a second. Verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. You know what's interesting about a sneeze? Everyone in this room sneezes, right? Anyone not sneeze? Lucas, I knew it would be you. The same guy who likes Superman. Uh, sneezes are just a part of life, right? There's kind of a mystery to sneeze. Now people are going to start sneezing because it's like the power of suggestion. Here's what's inter- interesting about a sneeze, though. We all know, most of us adults in the room at least know, we've seen the pictures, we've learned about it, that when a sneeze happens, it doesn't just, it doesn't just affect like a couple inches in front of my face, right? This picture on the screen is a picture of someone sneezing. Right Now, if someone were to have sneezed 10 minutes ago next to you, you would have not thought a whole bunch about it. But right now, if someone sneezes, I mean, just get up and leave quick, because everyone around you is going to be really grossed out by it. Here's why. We're fine with the sneeze as long as we can't see the effects of it. Sometimes when someone sneezes at just the right light, and they're standing this way, and the sun's behind them, and you're here, and you see the sneeze for what it really is, you're repulsed by it. And you're like, I'm married to this woman who sneezes? What's up with that? It's, and, yet, and yet before, if you hadn't seen it, you're fine with it. You sneeze. Everyone sneezes, right? It's, it's a little bit like this. When Jesus came, it's basically like he shone light in such a way that everyone's sneezes were exposed. And the grossness of their sin was exposed. The dust and the particles that are in their life were shown. And we don't like having our junk shown. So we silence the voice that does it. Jesus comes along and says this, if you're going to live like me, if you're going to follow in my way, here's what's going to happen. Your life will be lived in such a way that it will actually begin to expose other people's sin. It will convict them of sin. 
The message for you and I in this is to testify and to keep on testifying. Same sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Sometimes your good deeds will result in praise from those around you. Man, that's so nice of you. Good job. You're a nice person. We have an organization that we work closely with, Rich Henderson's, uh, the one who kind of heads it up. And many in this room have been involved with Love, Inc., Love in the Name of Christ. What Love in the Name of Christ tries to do is tries to partner local churches with needs in the community and says, let's build a bridge and let you find each other so that Christians can be a light and can serve and can give. From our church alone, in just a recent season of time, people in this room have been part of moving teams. Plumbing has gone on, transportation, home repair, house cleaning and organization. Money's been given. There have been a lot of good deeds that have gone on. That's just love in the name of Christ. All kinds of other things are happening out there. 1 Peter 3.13 says this, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But, even if you should suffer... For what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give, them, to, to, to give an answer to everyone who asks and to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against your good behavior, see how it's assumed there? Those who speak maliciously against your good behavior may be ashamed of their slander. What happens if you and I do good, begin to suffer for it, and attack back? It kind of negates it, doesn't it? We turn into the same methods that are being used against us. Verse 17 says, It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. What if you and I, what if us as a church began to really not fear what they fear. That would stand out, wouldn't it? Recessions here. What's on the lips of most people? Recession. I listened to an unbelievable podcast by John Piper. Six things God is trying to teach us during the recession. Let's not waste the suffering. Let's not fear the same things that everyone in our neighborhood is fearing. Let's not just try to be a little smarter with our money and make it through. Let's look at the bigger picture. What if we as a group collectively were suffering for doing good? Would this not be a convicting witness to the fact that there's something going on here that's different? That can't just be explained by you and I being here together? You know that we're called to be witnesses, and uh, the word witness in the Greek is the word martyr. Did you know that? So if you're martyred for your faith, it just became synonymous with a witness. That was the end result of those who witnessed and stayed true, witnessing for their faith. You know what our response to this should be is this, to increase in love and good deeds, and not to tire of it. Not to pull out of the race because there's persecution. Not to be shocked and say, whoa, we better isolate ourselves and protect ourselves and keep ourselves because this is way too uncomfortable. 
but instead to know it's coming and to suffer well. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. That's us. What are the next words? And for everyone else. Who's that? It's the world. In our discipleship picture of what we're doing here at this church to make disciples, the first part is worship. The second part is community. That's loving each other well, letting it spill over. The third part of it is share. That's loving other people well, letting it spill out into their life. Just as ours does for you, verse 13, may He strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all His holy ones. Christians are to be characterized by being the ones who love the very ones who harass them. Isn't that hard to do? It's impossible to do, isn't it? Without the Spirit of God in your life, it's impossible to do that. You can put on a show for a while, but you cannot love your enemies unless the Spirit of God's in you. You cannot forgive until you you see the magnitude that God's forgiven you. And then it becomes the only natural response. The easy response? No. But we're like the disciples. All these people left Jesus. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, Are you going to leave too? And they're like, Lord, what are we, 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 we have no choice in the matter. You alone possess the words to life. We get it. You're the way that leads home. Do we want to leave? Yeah, you're talking about eating flesh. That sounds really scary. It seems more logical to go with the majority. But we have no choice but to stay with you. You alone possess the words of life. I want to close by asking this question. I began to think about this whole notion of kind of the Christian ghetto that's, that's been created. It's been on my heart and mind for a lot of years. I've read a number of books on this. It's discouraging to me, actually, that um, rather than having Christians be so phenomenally good at their craft as a musician that they go out into the regular secular market and let their light so shine amongst the world that there's a difference and they're so good at their craft that people just stand up and take notice. What we've done is we've created a Christian subculture called contemporary Christian music. Now, take that same picture and move it through all of the arts. Take that same picture and move it to the school system. I'm going to start stepping on toes here at some point, so just brace yourself, okay? But let me just ask you this. This persecution that we're having, the suffering that we're having, you know what makes it all go away? It all goes away if we stay in our Christian ghetto. There's a sense that the world says, they're leaving us alone. They're They're not in our face anymore. They're just keeping themselves. It's the two side-by-side Lego kingdoms. All this goes away if we stay there. The persecution stops if we leave each other alone. But so does our mission. So does our identity. So does our effectiveness. And catch this. So does our Christ-likeness stop if we remain in our Christian subculture ghetto or within this community that is such a blessing to me and my family.
So the picture is quite clear. Christian music, Christian movies, Christian school, Christian bookstores, Christian sports leagues, Christian camps, Christian conferences, Christian coffee shops, Christian nightclubs. Never been to one, but they're out there. Here's my question. If not to build up, equip, and then send out, then why have those? Why have those at all? Philippians 2 is in your notes. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Good family verse to memorize. But how about the rest of it? Verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach. Catch this part. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I want you to take your pencil, pen, and underline the word children of God, that phrase. That's who we are. Your identity is so important. Moms, dads, aunts, uncles, grandparents, whoever's raising children in this room, pour this into your kids. This is what mealtimes are for. Take the remote and hide it from yourself. And pour identity into your kids. To pour it into your kids, you've got to know it for yourself, don't you? Pour, your, pour their identity into them. So they know they're children of God. And then it says, in the midst of, I want you to circle, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Is what you see on the news and on TV and in entertainment and on YouTube crooked and perverse? Can I get an amen on that? Yes! It doesn't even take a rocket scientist or someone super conservative to see that. And yet it says we're, we're not to be taken out of the world. But Jesus instead prays that we be protected from the evil one. We don't need protection from the evil one if we're all hanging out at a Berean Christian bookstore, sipping Christian coffee lattes and stuff. No protection needed. It's only if we're in the world. The last part of it, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have no reason to glory. I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Stay in the human race. Run and don't do it in vain. I want to invite the band to come on up. And this morning we're celebrating communion. And I want to direct our attention in a little bit of a unique way this morning for communion. We're going to take it in a way that we're pretty familiar with. In just a moment I'm going to uh, be done here and the band's going to play a couple of songs and in the course of those two songs, we have three stations, two here, one at the back. And I would just invite you to come on up and, and take communion right there at the table. If you'd like to take it and bring it back to your seat, celebrate it as a family or as a couple, you're welcome to do that. But as we share around the Lord's table this morning, I want you to think about this idea that this morning is about gathering some people say, I love what we do here. We have great music. It's just fun to be together. Let's do this a lot. And we've said at this church, we refuse to keep doing this a lot because it negates our witness in the world. We have no time for other people. 
if we're at the church three times a week. So this morning as you're taking the little cracker and the little cup of grape juice, I want you to think about the fact that we have gathered here today so that we can scatter. So you can go to your workplace, to your school, to your apartment complex, wherever it is you live the rest of the week, and be salt and be light and be the eyes, ears, hands, feet of Jesus. And let's live out our mission in this world. And then let's come together again in a week. Can we do this? And be encouraged by one another and celebrate well with one another and feed off the embracing love of one another because we need it because we're beat up and battered. I structure my home in such a way I want it to be a sanctuary. I know that the schoolyard is tough. I know that life is going to be brutal on my kids. And instead of trying to protect it from them, I know I can't. I want our home to be an absolute oasis where they get re-energized and loved on so well that they're absolutely convinced of their identity. And I keep pointing them to the one who will be with them forever and ever. And will never, ever leave them. And then send them out again. And that's what I want for our church. I want our church to be that same way. Don't just live your Christian life Sunday to Sunday. You live it in such a way that you cannot miss coming on a Sunday because you need us and we need you. That's the way the body is meant to function. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would forgive me First and foremost, Lord, for being more concerned with my comfort than the salvation of those who pass by me. I pray, God, that you would forgive me for at times fighting culture rather than looking to constructively influence culture in a way that points to you. God, I pray that you would empower us in such a way that we witness your miraculous power at work. As we preach and our lives are transformed. And we live in such a way, God, that when people mock and ridicule and persecute and treat different. That we grow to a place where we consider it all joy knowing that we're being tested, knowing that we must be doing something eternally right for this to take place and to glory in the fact that we get to share in the suffering of Christ. And Lord, as we eat a cracker and drink a little grape juice right now, we remember the suffering. We remember the mocking, we remember the beating that you took on our behalf. And God, those of us who are born of your Spirit say we cannot help but live lives that respond in one giant thank you to that. Be with us, God. Strengthen us 
as we scatter this week. We thank you for the blood and body of Jesus, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen.